Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this podcast and on whatever platform you're listening to it. My name is Dr. Carla Ionesco, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. Today, we will be talking about Nike, the goddess of victory. And I know that a lot of people often overlook Nike, including myself. I've never really bothered with her too much. I've seen her every now and then, of course. And um, as you all know, last week I was thinking of working on Medea, and I guess I've just been going on such a cycle of uh, monstrous women or scary women. Um, and I guess, I don't know, maybe I've been a little emotional with this whole, uh, I'm going to blame the Lionsgate portal. Those of you who know about the Lionsgate portal, which is sort of uh, astronomy, astrology kind of thing. Anyways. Uh, I decided to do something a little more fun and perhaps hopefully a little more positive uh, for all of us and a little more sparkly. And so I decided to look at Nike. So for those of you that are new, welcome. Uh, I know that there's been a few new followers. I'm very, very excited for you to be here and to join us in, I don't know, talking about goddesses and particularly symbolism around goddesses and mythology around goddesses. And for those of you that have been here for some time or even from the beginning. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to follow me and support me and supporting this podcast. It means everything that I can talk freely about goddesses and that you enjoy the talks. And so it's really, uh, it's really my happy place. Yeah. And so uh, I noticed a couple of things, actually, sorry, this is a side note. Uh, here comes the side notes. I noticed a couple of things I've been working on. I've been teaching myself how to make videos. And, you know, as an academic, I spend so much time in books and in libraries. And just recently, I've started really noticing how important it was to have kept a visual record of so many places that I've been. Um, you know, I've been traveling since I was younger, well, younger in my 20s as an undergrad. And I would be fascinated about places and I sometimes would write about them, but I didn't take as many pictures or videos as I would like. And the ones that I did take, I can't seem to find because, you know, we used to put them on a, a little USB disk or an SD card or whatever. And so I haven't been able to find some of those. Anyway, that's a long side note to, uh, to my point. Um, but I'm so I'm learning how to do all this tech and I'm trying to make this one video with a soundbite from my... Uh, my recent interview on Artemis. And one of the things that I noticed that I do a lot is that I pause, right? Um, and you probably know this as you've been following me and listening to me, I pause a lot. And I do this, I think, because in class and in lecture and when I'm speaking publicly, I like to think about what I'm going to say next. But to be honest, the languages in my head do like a four or five times sort of flip like if you can imagine it visually words flipping in different languages and so sometimes I'll take a pause and I'll be like what is the words that I'm looking for to describe the thing in English and uh and so and so the reason why I bring that up is because I'm making this video and there's so many pauses where I'm like um 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 and I'm like oh my god Carla stop with the ums but I mean, I just have to come to accept that that's just who I am. Sometimes when I'm lecturing, I, you know, I'm a walker. So I walk around and I like walk in between the desks and I'm all like hands and excited. <laughs> and sometimes I will have such a pause that I'll like walk up and down between my students and they're all looking at me like, okay, what, what are you going to say? What, what are you talking about? Uh, and I'm like flipping through words in my head, you know, and it, it takes me like a minute um, of pausing, which doesn't always come out as well um, in a podcast because you're either listening or watching me. Uh, you know, at least my students have no choice. They are, uh, <laughs> they're kind of sitting there trying to figure out what is she saying or is she just like blanked out? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I do blank out. That is very, very true. Sometimes the brain has so much data that you can only do, um, do so much with it. Yeah. The other thing I also find is that because the brain has so much data, sometimes you forget. Uh, so one of my biggest things is like forgetting terminology for things where it's like, you know what it is, but then you call it a thingy or uh, or that time that emperor did that thing. 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know if other academics have that. Um, sometimes it makes me feel a bit like, you know, Carla, you should have all these things down packed. Uh, but I think the beauty of this podcast is that I'm just being myself. And, uh, and I'm just enjoying having these conversations with you guys. And I'm hoping to have for it to be more conversational as we move forward. Um, and I'm learning how to be more conversational and less sort of lectury. But uh, I do like to have my notes. Still got all my notes with me today, uh, although a lot fewer for poor Nike. And uh, and I like to have my slides because I like visual images as well. So that will probably never change. But I hope that you're enjoying this, whether you're new or whether you've been around with me for a long time. I hope that you're enjoying it. This is uh, episode 15 of a 20 episode season. Um, and oh, and I wanted to say thank you so much to those of you who are sending your questions to me, um, whether it's on Instagram or in, on YouTube or where else am I putting it on Twitter. So I really want to say thank you. I'm collecting all of your questions. I'll probably post something else again today on Instagram and maybe even on Twitter um, to allow you to ask questions. So the final episode of this podcast for the season for season one, which is coming up in a few weeks, is going to be a question and answer period. So basically, I'm going to anonymously poll your questions that you've posted. So don't worry, everything is anonymous. And I'm going to read your questions. And then I'm going to answer them to the best of my ability. Some of your questions so far have been so great that like I have to go do research. I'm like, uh, I am not sure how that goes. And so I really appreciate uh, your questions. Again, they could be questions about anything. I mean, you could have questions about, of course, the goddesses. Um, you could have questions about symbols. You could have questions about periods in time. Uh, you could have questions about travel because I do a lot of solo traveling. Um, you can have questions about getting your PhD. I mean, I got my PhD now, uh, six years ago now, six years ago. Um, and, uh, so you can have questions about, you know, what it's like to do that, or maybe what, what I had to do to do that. You can have questions about anything. Sorry. That was my dog sneezing. If you heard him, um, about anything, um, yeah. I'm trying to think of anything else, but any, any questions that are, you know, appropriate questions, but anything that you would like for me to answer, um, that you think are, um, that you're interested in or, or things that have come up, please feel free to share those questions. Um, and I will answer them in our final episode. I'm very excited actually, because it feels very interactive and I've been thinking about doing some interactive things, um, online. So we'll see how that works. So yes, yeah, so thank you very much for those of you who have sent the questions and thank you for those who will be sending the questions. Um, other than that, as far as announcements, and this sounds so much like school, what are the announcements today? Um, if you're part of my Goddess Reads book club on Facebook um, and you're reading the book that we're reading, which is The Great Cosmic Mother, which is, hold on, let me grab it this book so if you're with us that's fantastic if you're not that's all right you can actually join us on facebook anyways and you know just participate in our conversations so that's great um and if you haven't had a chance to and you've probably seen my video from today um buy my book she who hunts what i'm doing right now is that i have a stack of them from a couple of book signings that i've done and so if you go on the artemis research center which is my center uh you will see at shop online you will see a link that says buy signed book and that will allow you to tell me how you want me to sign a book, buy a book, and I will ship it to you signed to your, for you, for your friend, for your wife. I once had a gentleman come in when I was doing a book signing and uh, I was like, oh, okay, welcome, whatever. And he's like, oh no, I saw, I saw your poster for the book signing and I, my wife is totally into Artemis and I thought I'd come buy a book and have you sign it for her as a gift. And I thought that was so cool. It was so nice um really thoughtful husband yeah great um I think that's about all of the announcement that comes to mind so far and uh so let's begin talking about Nike so I'm going to just for those of you who are watching this on YouTube you are seeing me trying to share my screen with you right now so I have a few 
Here we go, Nike. I have a few images of Nike, but like I always say, um, you don't have to um sold hold on one second. Okay, perfect. No, I don't want this. You don't have to you don't have to have these videos in front of you in order to sorry, I'm trying to do something here. It's uh, Zoom. Zoom is so annoying. Anyways, you so you don't have to have these in front of you in order for you to enjoy this podcast. But if you're here watching it, so I've titled this episode, What's So Special About Victory? Um, and like I said, I've sort of underestimated Nike myself um, because she has been so, I think because I have a hesitation to have anything to do with Athena and I've always sort of associated her Nike with Athena or with um, Zeus. And so because of that, I think that I've always kind of shoved her to the side, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what do we know about Nike sort of initially? Well, she's a winged goddess of victory. So one of the things that really stands out about Nike, and I've talked about this in the past about other goddesses, but one of the things that really stands out about Nike is the fact that she has wings and she's almost always portrayed with wings. And so, excuse me. And so um, that makes, she's one of the few goddesses that has been able to keep her wings throughout time or throughout history. So Nike's the goddess of victory. She's often got wings. Uh, she's actually the goddess of victory, both in war and in peaceful competition, which is really interesting. Uh, we'll talk about how she helped Zeus in the Titan War or the war against Titan. She is depicted in ancient Greek, in ancient Greek vase paintings with a variety of attributes. So she has the wings. She also has a wreath and she has a sash, which usually crowns a victor. So it's very, um, very beauty queenish, right? In fact, that tradition comes from uh, the winners of Greek competitions. Uh, so she usually crowns a victor and gives him a sash. She sometimes has a bowl and a cup for libations. Okay, she has an incense burner sometimes. Sometimes she has an altar, a lyre, uh, usually for the celebration of um, a victory song. So she has a few different aspects with her. So I'm going to show you a few images or talk about a few images, and then you're going to see some of these characteristics. Like I said, she's closely identified with the goddess Athena because of course, Athena becomes the goddess of war. Um, she, as she moves away from the goddess of wisdom of sort of archaic Greece or pre-Greece, she moves into the goddess of war. And um, as a sign, of course, a complementary sign of war is victory. And so Nike becomes sort of an attribute of the goddess. And she Nike is sometimes multiplied into a host of Nikais. So we're going to talk about Nikais or victories. And, you know, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking one day I'm going to do Athena right. Um, perhaps in season two, I have a lecture on Athena that I do. But it's a little bit jaded, like I said, because Athena has always irked me. It's not her fault, really. The words that she says are male playwrights or male authors that put those words in her mouth. So I know sometimes I'm not being fair to her, but she irks me sometimes. So anyways, that's just another side note. <laughs> Little side rant. Welcome to the podcast of Little Side Rants. So let's talk about the War of the Titans and how Nike played a key role in, or how actually Nike came to be celebrated or held to honor by uh, because of her participation and her family's participation in the War of the Titans. So I'm going to read you what Hesiod says in his Theogony. Um, so Styx, the daughter of Okeanus, was joined to Pallas. Now, I got to tell you a little side story about Pallas, okay? So when we're talking about Pallas, we're talking about here, we're talking about Pallas the Titan, not Pallas the Giant or the Gigantes, okay? Uh, so Pallas the Titan is the god of Warcraft, okay? And uh, in Greek mythology, um, he's he's the husband, of course, of Styx and the brother of uh, Perses. Uh, his parents are Creus and Eurybia. Anyways, uh, and he has he's the father of Nike and a few others. And so, what was my side story? Oh yes, of course. So when I so when my son was born, 
um, I named him Pallas Nesta. Okay. And uh, he was quite unhappy because he because we always refer to Pallas Athena um, as the um... okay hold on I'm trying to make sense of this story so we refer to you've probably heard the term Pallas Athena and that's because of course she kills the giant or the, the gigantic palace and then she also wears his skin which is always scaly anyways when my son grew up because we referred to Pallas Athena so much, especially in this household, right? He always thought that he was named after a girl. Although to be fair, it's quite Athena is quite a impressive girl to be named after. And so he always used to go by the name of Nesta. And uh, then, I don't remember at what age, but late, late. I mean, he always wanted to change his name when he was a kid, blah, blah, blah. But late, maybe in his teens, um, he actually looked up the term palace because I had told him it's not after a girl although there's nothing wrong with that and he looked up the the word or the god or the titan in this case palace and he saw that it was a god of warcraft and suddenly the name was cool and so I think in grade nine or ten he changed his name to palace like he said to people to call him palace and and now he goes by that uh, he goes by palace and so every time I see that name it really um Makes me smile a little bit because um, it's an interesting name, not just for my son, you know, because I really liked it. But what's interesting is that I've always liked the fact that Athena conquers this significant warrior and then wears his skin sometimes and takes his name. Yeah. Anyways, don't tell my kid that. Um let him go with the palace, uh, the god of Warcraft. Okay. So Nike, back to Nike. Ooh, today's a side story kind of day. So Nike. So she's the daughter of Okeanos, uh, who was joined. Sorry, Styx was joined with Pallas. So they're they're married. And they gave birth to Zealous, Zealous, which is emulation. Okay. Nike, which is victory. Okay. Um, and then there's Kratos, which is strength, and Bia, which is force. So Styx and Pallas had four children. Yeah, Zealous, Nike, Kratos, and Bia. All of them having to do with something to do with victory, strength, emulation, force. Now, they were not a part of Zeus's house, nor any dwelling um, except where gods stayed. But they always stayed with Zeus the Loud Thunder. So they're not they're not Olympians per se, but they always remain with Zeus the Loud Thunders, Thunderer, according to Hesiod. For so did Styx, the deathless daughter of Okeanos, plan on that day when the Olympian Lightner, Zeus, called all the deathless gods to great Olympus and said that whosoever of the gods would fight with him against the Titans, he would not cast out from his rights, but each should have the office which he had before amongst the deathless gods. So basically, if you come fight with me, against the titans you will receive glory and you will forever remain in the office or the position that you were before this war started so deathless sticks i know this is his talking but so deathless sticks came first to olympus she was the first one with her children through the wit of her dear father so her father okeanus told her go 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 and Zeus honored her and gave her very great gifts. For her, he appointed to be the great oath of the gods. So you know the river sticks where the gods and the Greeks would swear by the river sticks. And her children to live with him always. And as he promised, so he performed fully unto all of them. So this is what Hesiod says about um, how Nike came to be celebrated as Zeus's sort of favorite and we are told, I have this image up, but you can Google um, Zeus uh, in his temple, in the temple of Zeus. He's sitting on a throne. He's got the ego beside him. He's got a staff in his hand and in his, in his uh, left hand and in his right hand is Nike. Yeah. And she's holding a wreath yeah? and she's standing there, of course. So he's holding his, uh, he's holding victory. Um, and she this idea of gods, especially Zeus and Athena, holding Nike in their hands becomes primary in their imagery. Uh, we're going to talk about Athena's temple in a minute, but becomes primary in the way that imagery or statues are depicted and in the way especially that Nike is associated with uh, Zeus and Athena. And so it seems that Nike's family is not only, of course, great warriors, 
because of course the Olympians defeat the Titans, but because they were the first to volunteer their loyalty to Zeus, they always have a special place in Zeus's heart, particularly Nike, who becomes sort of his sidekick and the sidekick of his most arguably powerful daughter. Although I would say Artemis is the most powerful daughter, but um, you know, Athena, she also uses, she also has Nike and Nikai all around her as a symbolism and imagery. One of the interesting things um, about Nike when she is portrayed with Athena or um, Zeus is that she is often portrayed wingless. So the idea was that when she appears alone, when Nike appears alone, she has wings and always supports a, a palm branch in her right hand, which is an offering of peace or a wreath. But if she's seen with another god, Nike is usually wingless. So that's kind of interesting. Um, according to some accounts, and in, including Pausanias, Nike is portrayed without wings in Athens, especially so that she could never fly away from the city, which I thought was kind of interesting and also a little creepy um, in the sense that Athens clipped her wings, right? And again, another reason to not like Athena or Zeus. Right, this idea that now to be fair, we're going to talk about the Nikai and others, and they do have wings, and so, and we're actually going to talk about the Nike of Samthras, who also has wings. So it is a bit of um, a mystery why sometimes Nike shows up without wings. I mean, this is one of the theories that ancient scholars talked about and modern scholars talk about, but um, it's kind of interesting, right, that she appears. Uh, with wings when she's independent and without wings, usually when she was portrayed with Zeus or Athena. Um, now, when you, if you Google Nike, you're going to see a variety of depictions, which is kind of interesting because what I've learned in this recent research is that there is so much um, interpretation, so much interpretation and I think perhaps the ancients took Nike for granted in the sense that they assumed that everybody forever for the next few thousand years would know what she meant. And I think her meaning is quite clear in some ways as, as far as victory and uh, winner of competitions and things like that. But I think the nuances of what she's holding in her hands or whether or not she has wings, I think those nuances are a bit lost to us you know they're interpreted and hopefully correctly but they're a bit lost to us still we don't know for sure Pausanias like I said is one of my favorite primary sources um, and so I usually um, use him as a primary source even in our podcast and of course in my own writings but it is important to remember that Pausanias is still just a guy walking around with limited knowledge what's my favorite thing about Pausanias as a as a primary source is that it looks like he took the time to ask the locals of places that he visited what does this represent why do you have it like this what do you do here or to observe so he was kind of like an early anthropologist but again I mean he still has his own bias and we don't know who he talked to and we don't know if people you know told him the true stories or the right stories or the oldest stories etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. So let's move on to Nike um, and the giant um, Typhius. So this is a really interesting aspect of, of the giant Typhius uh, or the story of the giant Typhius. I'm going to read you um, the Dionysica by Nonus because I think that's one of my favorite ones and also the easier one to read. But also because Nike takes such a um, aggressive role um, in the way that she speaks to Zeus um, in this battle. Okay. So when the monster Typhius besieged Olympus, all the gods fled except for Zeus and Nike. And in the image that I have here, Zeus is, of course, holding some kind of a rod slash lightning bolt um, slash. Yeah, lightning bolt. Let's keep it at that. And uh, Typhius is interesting because he has his um, snaky legs. Okay which of course Gigantes uh, were famous for. And he has wings. And so he's really quite fat, quite a fascinating figure. And so you can imagine that he was a formidable opponent. Anyways, so only Zeus and Nike remained. Zeus was alone when Nike came to comfort him, scoring the high paths of the air with her shoes. Okay, she's flying. She had the form of Leto, 
And right here, you could just see my eyes go, what? Leto? You know, Leto is the mother of Artemis and Apollo. But she has the form of Leto. Interesting. And while she armed her father, she made him a speech full of reproaches with guileful lips. Now, in this story, you've probably already caught on. It seems that in the Dionysica, Nike is the daughter of Zeus. Okay. She says, Lord Zeus. Of course, this is in 5th uh, CE. So this is a much later version. Okay. This is a, um, a Roman version of the story. Lord Zeus, stand up as your champ as a champion of your own children. Let me let me never see Athene mingled with um, Typhon or Typhius. She who knows not the way of a man with a maid. So Athena is a virgin. I don't ever want to see Athena attacked by this giant. Make not a mother of the unmothered. It's a weird thing to say. Fight, brandish your lightning, the fiery spear of Olympus. Gather once more your clouds, Lord of the rain, for the foundations of the steadfast universe are already shaking under Typhon's hands. The four blended elements are melted. Demeter has renounced her harvests. Hebe has left her cup. Ares has thrown down his spear. Hermes has dropped his staff. Apollo, Apollon, has cast away his harp and taken a swan's form and flown off on the wing, leave, leaving his winged arrows behind. So everyone has left. Everyone is terrified. Okay. Aphrodite, the goddess who brings wedlock to pass, has gone on wondering, and the universe is without seed. The bonds indissoluble of harmony are dissolved, leaving behind his generative arrows, the adorner of brides, he the all-mastering, the unmastered. And your fiery Hephaestus has left his favorite Lemnos and dragging unruly knees. Look how slowly he keeps his unsteady, cor unsteady course. See a great miracle. I pity your Hera, though she hates me, sure enough. What is your begetter, Cronus, to come back into the assembly of the stars? May that never be, I pray. Even as I am called a Titaness, I wish to see no Titan, Lord of Olympus but you and your children. Take your lordly thunderbolt and champion chaste Artemis. <sighs> There's so much to unpack here. So this is one story. There are other stories that actually say that Nike had nothing to do with the battle of Zeus and the giant uh, Typhius, that in fact, uh, no one had to yell at him to get moving, that Zeus did go after Typhius and defeated him. So this is a later version What's fascinating about this later version, and like I said, it's in sort of the Roman period, is that Nike takes this stand aggressively, really shaking Zeus out of his sort of fear. I don't know. It's not clear how Zeus is feeling. Maybe discouragement because everyone has abandoned him. And she does an interesting thing. She she guilts him into saying Artemis like the, your chase Artemis and your un, where is she? Unmothered Athena. So basically the two virgin daughters that you have, virgin, um, are threatened by this giant who has scared every single Olympian out of Olympus and is now coming to like sort of take your daughters for his own. And what are you going to do? You're just sitting here doing nothing. And so she kind of yells at him and in her yelling at him, Zeus picks up his lightning bolt and defeats uh, Typhius. So very, very interesting what role, particularly the Romans, give Nike. And as we move forward through time, we're going to see that Nike actually becomes extremely popular, no surprise, in the patriarchy. Um, there is this really interesting connection between warring communities such as the Athenians, the Spartans, etc. And their worship of a powerful goddess. Um, I'm working on a piece um, about Artemis at Sparta and how the Spartans um, worshipped her. Uh, and that's part of my book. It comes out of my book. Actually, I'm just going to expand on it a little bit more than I do in the book uh, for this article. But one of the things that's come across, and then I kind of came across this 
this Nike situation where Nike's kind of encouraging and dragging and guilting and pushing Zeus into into battle, into victorious battle. And I thought to myself, like, it's so interesting that men, warring men, like communities or or cities of war, have these powerful goddesses as their inspiration, motivation, etc. But the wives, well, particularly for Athenians, the wives or the women living in Athens at that time had no power you know, and are seen as and are often powerless. Uh, Spartan women, of course, are a little bit different. But I don't know. There's just something there that that. And then, of course, as we move forward through patriarchy in the last sort of 2000 years, Nike really becomes celebrated by masculinity. And of course, it's because if she represents victory. There's something again about being crowned by a beautiful goddess. Uh, it's sort of like um, I don't know if you guys watch uh, motorcycle racing, the G seven or I don't know. My husband watches a lot of you know he's a he's, well we're both writers, but he watches a lot of races. Sorry, MotoGP that's the word. Sorry, the name was not coming to me. And the winner of the MotoGP and you know this happens for car races and this happens for wrestling and this happens for everything boxing, uh, you know MMA. There's women, you know, crowning or spraying the champagne, or giving the trophy. And that really is a connection, an an echo of Nike, right? Because Nike is this beautiful goddess, sometimes many more than one in her representation, Nikai's. And they are awarding, or she is awarding the winner. And that there's something very um, empowering about being awarded uh, by a beautiful goddess, a goddess of victory. In this case, a goddess, of course, that even Zeus listens to or reacts to. So I just thought that that was an interesting connection, an application of mythology uh, to our modern world, right? And uh, we don't often make that connection. I think I never did until I was reading how many times Nike awards uh, victory, you know, and how many times she crowns people and how many times she gives them medals and how many times she gives them all these things uh, and that people wait for her recognition or her awarding in order to gain that recognition. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then how that connects to our modern uh, depiction or our modern application of that uh, of that material. So the cult of Nike. Now, there's a few cults of Nike. So I thought I would read you a couple of Pausanias's notes because I find it really fascinating. Um, he's really, really great. Like, I can't say enough about Pausanias because I think he's living my goal life, like I've talked about before, which is just kind of going from city to city, village to village and making notes. Um, So he talks, of course, about um, the Nike that's in the Acropolis. So he says, on the right of the gateway of the Acropolis in Athens is a temple of Nike Apteron, Nike wingless. So you see how I was saying to you guys that Nike in Athens is without wings. And again, that idea was that Athens kind of clipped her wings so that she wouldn't be able to fly. Um, and so Pausanias is one of the primary sources that confirms this. Uh, and then he says later on, he says, um, the statue of Athena in the same Acropolis is upright with a tunic reaching to her feet. She holds a statue of Nike about four cubits high and in the other hand, a spear. So again, Athena's holding her in her hand. Uh, let's see. Oh, at Sparta. So not an accident that the Spartans worship Artemis and in Sparta, there's an old image of Ares in Fetter. The idea of the Lacedaemonians expressed by this image is the same as the Athenians expressed by the wingless Nike. So the former think that Nike will never run away from them being bound in the fetters, while the Athenians think that Nike having no wings will always remain where she is. In this fashion and in such belief have these cities set up their wooden images. So basically, um, the image... Sorry, the image of Ares is is trapped. That's what he's saying in Sparta, is uh, in fetters, right? But, and what he says is, this is the same as in, in, uh, in Athens where they clip Nike's wings. So the idea is, again, the same, that trapping a god in your city or a divine being in your city, make sure that they never leave. Yeah. Um, later on, he says, the Athenians dedicated a bronze statue of Nike on the Acropolis as a memorial to the events of the Spectoria, their victory over the Spartans. Okay, so that's another one. We're going to talk about that one actually in a minute. Um, he talks about this wingless victory a lot. Uh, 
Um, yep. Then he goes into Attica. Sorry, I'm just going through these so that because he says the same thing over and over again. In this temple, there's this. In this temple, there's this. He talks about uh, in Argolis, there is uh, in Asclepius's temple. Temple, there are figures of Heracles and some Nikai, which are victory symbols. So I'm going to talk about the Nikai in a minute. Um, oh, and he even says in Sparta, in the west portico of the temple to Athena, in Sparta, has two eagles, and on the eagles are two Nikai or two victories. Okay. Um, and then lastly, he goes to Ellis and he says um, in his uh, right hand, Zeus, in the sanctuary in Ellis, he carried uh, Nike, which like the statues, ivory and gold, she wears a ribbon and a garland. And then he says there's also four other Nikai represented as dancing women, one at each foot of the throne and three others at the base of each foot. So Nike herself is part of a cult. Um there are some um, primary sources that say that she had a little, what do you call it, a little temple or a little sanctuary uh, down at the bottom of the Acropolis in Athens. I've seen those sources, um, but she didn't have too many of her own particular temples. So she was not worshipped. She's an, This is really interesting because she's not worshipped as an individual figure in the sense that she has her own temple or her own cult per se. But in many ways, she has her own cult and is part of many temples because she's always there and because she represents the figurative, the visual power of a victory. So again, a really fascinating character. I really don't think that there's anyone else like Nike. Again, we really sort of underestimated her or I did. And I know that people really love the depiction of wings and because she's a, she's a, one of the few goddesses that kept her wings. She is often depicted in art. And so I know that part. But as far as academics and classics and even books, articles, you kind of you kind of go over the same primary sources. Of course, we have limited primary sources. You have you go over the same ideologies and she plays the same sort of key role, like I said, in War and Peace. But she's really a fascinating figure because of the power that she has to award victory in a war culture. And I don't want to say that the Greeks are only a war culture because, of course, they have other um, wonderful talents. But really, really fascinating. The more I think of it, I don't know if I'm expressing it right or maybe if you're feeling sort of what I'm saying, but... You know, she holds power without holding power kind of thing, right? Because if she's not there, who awards the victory? And and think about how important victory is to the Greeks, to the Spartans, or before, you know, everybody sort of, and later the Romans, and later, you know, most European cultures, and like, like we'll talk about the Olympics and all the places that Nike shows up. And of course, eventually we'll talk about the shoes. But if you think about it, she's so significant and now just like the sphinx right because when i did the 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 podcast on the sphinx i started seeing her everywhere and now that i started traveling again i'm starting to see her everywhere and and since i've started looking at nike i'm starting to see her everywhere um and uh i'm really really fascinating sorry i'm going on because i'm like super fascinated by her okay so let's talk about the nikai yeah so the nikai are interesting uh i had one uh, of my followers, one of my mutuals, because we're mutuals on, on Instagram, send me a picture. I think it was exactly this picture. Sorry if it's not. Don't get mad at me. Uh, but I think it was exactly not a picture. Well, a picture of this relief of this um, slab from um, the balustrade. The balustradas. It's in Romania. You say the balustrada of the Ionic Temple of Athena Nike. So there's this section where you have these two Nikais that are taking... Um, a bull to sacrifice. Yeah, they, they restrain. It looks like, a well, some people think it's a bull, a small sacrificial bull too. And this is about 400 BCE, okay? And so the question was, how come there's two Nikais or, or you know, versus the one Nike? And so as you've probably heard, and we've been talking about this, that there are 
again, sorry, like the more I try to think of explaining it, the more fascinated I am by her. She is also the only divinity that has like clones, <laughs> clones of herself in a way, because this, you know, they say, oh, these are the personification of Nike. So the personification, uh, so Nikai's are really the personification of Nike, which is great or the personification of victory. But if you think about it, that means then that Nike has actually numerous clones. And while other goddesses like Artemis and others have like nymphs um, or other attendants or people that sort of are their servants, this is a personification. So these personifications of Nike do not uh, worship her. They do not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not her followers. They are literally crones, uh, clones, clones of her. Yeah? And so this relief is really interesting, but also as we'll talk about a few others um, in which, so Nike, <laughs> I'm trying to say, so Nike can take a position at the right hand of Zeus or Athena while simultaneously Nikai's will perform sacrifice or will be placed throughout inside and outside temples representing victory. It's fascinating. No, it's like mind blowing. What other divinity has a multiplication of self? Um, often identical multiplication. This is why I call them clones because they have wings. They carry the wreath. Um, they carry all of the items, the different items. And they represent victory. And so the more Nikais, for example, you have in a temple or the more Nikais you have outside of a temple or the more Nikais you have in your household. Oh, my God. They're like Oscars. You know, people win Oscars, which is the little gold dude. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I can't think of an actor that has a ton of them. Uh, Meryl Streep okay, has a ton of, of, of little golden statues in her house. This in the old days would have been little Nikai's, right? It would have been little Nikai's um, in the old days that a winner or a competitor or someone else would have in their household. Um, and now we have Oscars, which is kind of weird that we have a dude statue. But, you know, the patriarchy. Yeah. So this is a uh, this is the, the picture from the Temple of Athena. Yeah. Very interesting. Ah, and here we go. So if you're not watching this and you're just listening to me, I have a couple of images here, three images, actually. So one um, is of Athena's temple at Athens inside one is so the recreations. I'm sorry, the recreations um, and the reference to the recreations is on the image uh, of who recreated them. So they're recreations of what it might have looked like. So, for example, the one where Athena is inside, you might have seen this as this golden statue of this massive Athena. And in her hand, she holds nike we think or it could have been one of her replications and at the bottom so athena is larger than life you know she's like two three stories tall and at the bottom on either side of the temple there are these golden nikais almost like golden angels like golden female angels um and again of course they represent victory and when you walked in imagine what it would have been like because these are made of gold imagine what it would have been like uh to walk through it and then outside yeah outside so the interior of the Parthenon was packed with these treasures. Okay. Um, and uh, Phaedus, who is uh, one of the great sculptors that, that sculptured the goddess Athena, uh, also was said to have sculptured um, the Nikai that she, the Nike that she hold that she holds in her hand, and the other golden Nikais that are in the um in the temple themselves. Okay. Now, some of these Nikai dedications that you see that were inside um, the Parthenon were said to have begun immediately after the Peloponnesian War in about 430 BCE. And so we have the first dedicate, we have the first supposed dedicate dedication, I'm sorry, of a golden Nike uh, in 434 BCE. Okay, and, and some scholars believe this is in connection to Athens' victory over the Samian rebels. And then we have the dedication of these statues that continues well into the 4th century. And the last one that we have of a golden Nike being dedicated uh, comes from the Athenian treasury list in 374. So a good maybe 100, 150 years in which these Nikais are being um, 
dedicated after each victory over wars by the Athenians. And so they are kind of like an Oscar, only not for a film. Yeah. Um, And so there's a lot of connections between these Nikais, according to scholars, and some naval victories, um, other victories, that kind of stuff. Um, So there's there's a sort of multifaceted... um, aspects of them and one hand these were seen as uh tides that were due to the patron goddess of the city so some people believe that these nikais were dedicated because they were owed to athena for the victories of course of the athenians of course on the other hand a lot of scholars talk about how these were sort of literally gold um are a gold repository and so in case of financial hardships um, the city could just melt these down and then they would uh, serve uh, the polis or the city as sort of financial uh, subsidy for military forces, right? And so in a way, they served a very symbolic political and financial um, role. And there's a picture, of course, outside of the Parthenon as well, a sort of, again, a, a reimagining. And you've got uh, two golden Nikais at the top, sort of far corners, probably on all four corners. And then you've got more golden Nikais sort of on, on the sides of the Parthenon. And that's sort of how it was imagined, right? So you have the symbolic image of victory because it's gold, Um, or certainly gold-plated because there's an argument that inside was wood so that it could be taken apart and put back together. But because it it carried so much gold, there's an image of wealth. So we've got victory, we've got wealth. um, And then, of course, political power because winning victories and having a lot of gold is greatly political. Yeah. Um, And so there are a lot of treasury lists that list all of these uh, evidence of these images and talked about sort of how much they weigh. So, for example, one of the lists say that um, each statue is about 55 kilograms. So 55 kilograms, and I'm just doing the math in my head, is maybe about 140, 150 pounds of gold. Yeah. So imagine, right? At present market price, I looked this up. Mm -hmm. Each of these Nikai would have been worth, each one would have been worth um, about 2 million US dollars today, today, yeah, at present market prices. So each each statue is $2 million. Now, if you think about it, right, $2 million is probably not that much, um, but was a lot of gold. Yeah? So if you had 20 of them, 30 of them, because it's unclear how many there were. Um, Some of the images that I've seen of recreations have like eight to 10. Some of them have 12. If you count the ones outside, you're getting near 20, 25 of them. Um, Then you're looking at a good $50 million worth of gold, right? Give or take market prices. So again, right? Things you didn't know about these statues. Now the statues, like I said, were made of separate pieces. Um, some of the sources say that common practice for the fifth and fourth century bronze casters was that they were made of separate pieces so they could be easily disassembled for weighing and then inspection for treasurers of Athena. Yeah. Um, and more, since the statues were dedicated over time, we can imagine that there were a wide range of Nike types as paradigms. So there was a lot of different uh, sort of repetitions of the same or different takes on the same statue, which is not bad. Now, the other thing that I found really fascinating is that at the um, National Archaeology Museum in Athens, they have these tunicais that stand there. Uh, there's an image of them here, but you can look them up. And um, they're ceramic. You know, you can clearly say that they're see, see that they're ceramic. They don't have hands, and it's not clear whether or not they had wings. I'm leaning towards. No, but correct me if I'm wrong. And one of the things that I found really frustrating is that I'm trying to figure out what these Nikais or where where they're from um, and what they have to do with Nike. And so we know that they're from the, the Parthenon, of course, because that's where they were found. But the only reference that I found on this is an article uh, by Wesley Thompson. It's called The Golden Nikai and the Coinage of Athens. Okay, it's on JSTOR. You can access it for, for free. 
And he talks about how um, the Nikai, you know, in the Parthenon were, of course, not only just gold, but they also had gold parts like their hands were gold, of course, their bracelets, their crowns, everything was added. OK, um, and and that's great. Right. And he talks about he describes how they were taken apart and how they were made, et cetera, et cetera. But then he says um, that of all of these Nikais, most scholars have supposed that these frames, the frames of the Nikai, are all that remain of the seven statues which were used in producing the gold coinage. But Woodward, which is another scholar, thinks that they belong to the two Nikai, which still exist at this time, and that the statues were not assembled for display. So the tunicae that he's talking about are the ones that are in Athens. Although there is no way of proving uh, either view, Woodward's, Woodward's, the scholar uh, Woodward's, uh, does seem unlikely on its face. Of the two statues, one had survived the crisis of the Peloponnesian War, and the other had been dedicated in 374. So these are the ones that I mentioned to you. So really the first and the last kind of thing. Yet we would have to believe that within a few years, this new statue has not been seen. And so what he's really saying here is that the two statues that we have in the Athens Museum are the frames or the molds for some of the Nikai that were cast in gold inside the Acropolis. Now, again, it's unclear because the statues themselves, if you look them up, uh, they are first first to third century AD. Of course, they were found at the uh, sorry, they're at the Museum of Acropolis in um, in Athens, and so they're dated a little bit later. Yeah, a little bit later than the la as as the scholar says, three seventy four BCE, which is six hundred years before. Um, and so there's some confusion, especially for me. Although, please, if you have any information, please feel free to drop it in the um in the comments below of what role these tunicais played, because I have been looking for it through JSTOR and through just normal Google searching um, and museum. You know, I went to the museum website to look up some of the material um, and they don't really have very much information other than of course, where they were found and that they're tunicais, but I'm really, and I don't know if it's just me because I stood in front of them and I'm now I'm like, why didn't I notice how significant they might have been? Um, and so because of that, if you have any information on these two Nikai uh, at the Museum of Athens, the National Archaeological Museum of Athens, please drop that in a comment or a link or anything like that. Because uh, as you know, sometimes I'm looking for something and I can't find it and I get a little bit obsessed by it. Yeah? But either way, really, really fascinating um, story about the Nikai, the fact that Nike has clones and I'm going to call them clones the, or replicas of herself. And the fact that they are replicated over and over again, the fact that they of course represent power and politics and winning a very fascinating and complicated um, history of Nike that I don't know that we knew that much about. Um, I also wanted to talk briefly about Nike of Samothras, which is uh, this beautiful statue that everyone has seen um, the winged victory of Samothras, so to speak. Uh, or the Nike of Samothrace, which is um, a monument that was originally found on the island of Samothrace, north of the Aegean Sea. Okay, Now, it says that it is a masterpiece of Greek sculpture from the Hellenistic era, dating to the beginning of the 2nd century BCE. And it's supposed to be the, uh, the goddess of victory whose heads and arms are missing. And the interesting part is that she's standing on a ship. Yeah. Uh, now, the art historian Jansen pointed out that unlike earlier Greek or Near Eastern sculptures, this Nike creates a deliberate relationship to the imaginary space around the goddess. So this has been one of the things that makes Nike unique um, is that she is always depicted in flight or in wind, the wind that has carried her and which she is fighting off, straining to keep steady. So that's one of the things that has really um, entranced a lot of artists and sculptors um, because it is such a unique an interesting depiction. Um, so she is, she was just sort of, she was originally mounted on the ship's prow. It looks like she has just landed, which is really beautiful. Uh, almost like there's an invisible um, push around the figure. Yeah. 
So it, it's sort of Nike in flight, which is really amazing. This kind of interplay. So sorry, at the same time, the expanded space heightens the symbolic force of the work. So the wind and the sea suggest that there are metaphors for struggle between destiny and divine help, almost like Nike has landed to help you to victory, especially at the top of your ship. So this kind of interplay between a statue and the space um, is is something that conjures up. It's a common device in Baroque or Romantic art, but this comes 2000 years later. Uh, it's present in Michelangelo's sculpture of David. So David's gaze and pose shows where he is seeing his adversary, the Goliath, and his awareness of the moment. But this is apparently very rare in ancient art. So it's very rare in ancient art that you have a moment of movement that is captured in stone or marble. Um, and so that's what makes this piece really interesting. And the other thing that's really interesting is that uh, no one really knows. So these two pieces, apparently the bottom part, which is the ship was built in Rhodes. Um, and no one knows exactly what this piece, what was the role of this piece. Some people said it was a fountain, but it doesn't look like there's any water damage. Um, and so people were like, no, this seemed to have been a very unique, um, expensive and perhaps even private or certainly indoors, um, image. And it took a lot of, a uh, great deal of work to make this sculpture 2000 years ago seem like it's in movement or has just landed uh, from flight. So I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, the other really fascinating, of course, and similarly fascinating uh, image is the statue of Nike of Paeonius. So Nike, Nike of Paeonius um, is from the 4th century BCE. And again, one of the, and this, the statue was found in pieces, but again, one of the interesting um aspects of this statue is again this appearance of wind movement yeah so the statue was installed to commemorate the victory of a land battle between Athens and Sparta and you know it was erected in 420 BCE um, a few years after the victory and so this was very common for for Nike statues to be placed to be made and like I said placed for victory but what's really interesting is um that it looks like, again, she's landing gently on her left foot and that everything her, including her, um, her dress, including her, uh, clothing is flowing in the wind. And that's really beautiful and really unique. So again, really fascinating how much time and uniqueness was applied, um, to the statues of Nike. Uh, we've talked about how she's a symbol of victory, and we've talked about how she is the key to victory. And there's lots of stories in which heroes would wait uh, for, for, so heroes would not technically win until she crowned them or she gave them the sash. And so again, we've talked about how that that's powerful in a sense, because she sort of holds that power. I mean, it's a weird, it's a double-edged sword because in many ways she has no choice, but to award uh, so if we're looking at people like if we're looking at women in sports who are awarding awards, um, I mean, you have to give the award. It's not like, so you don't literally have power over the award. But symbolically speaking, it's really fascinating that all of these warriors, it's almost like she gives them permission to be winners. Yeah. And I think there's something to that. I think there's power in that. Um, and so, yeah, as a symbol of victory, she becomes, of course, especially powerful. And so now that leads us to the modern world. And in the modern world, I've just picked these three things, although there are several, I have a bit of a list of uh, Nike in the modern world. Uh, but I thought I'd speak about these three things because I think they're sort of my, my favorite. Now, since 1928, probably many of you know this, I haven't watched the Olympics in a long time, but since 1928, the Olympics medal has sported Nike on the adverse side, bearing her wreath of history, victory, sorry, wreath of victory, and I guess history, and the shield upon which the victor's name is inscribed. Okay, so that's, um, and you can see here, I've pulled a couple of gold medals, and you can see her on here. Yeah. Um, although now that I look at it, I don't see the shield, um, but you can see that she is, um, and if you've seen Olympic medals, you can see that she is obviously front and center on the Olympic medals. Um, and so that's one of the things that was really interesting. And 
one of my favorite parts about this, I know it's in, started in 1928, but one of my favorite parts about this is how how it commemorates or or arcs back or echoes back to the original Greek Olympics uh, in Olympia. And so I really like this tradition and I'm very, very glad that she is once again um, a key symbol of victory. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things that I didn't know about is the por a portion of the hood ornament in all the Rolls-Royce vehicles include a depiction of Nike. So if you look up Nike Rolls-Royce, now I have the image here for those of you watching, but if you look up Nike Rolls-Royce, you will see an image, which I never really connected to Nike before, of a woman. Um, I mean, she's dressed in something. Anyways, and she's and her arms are kind of these wings. Her arms are almost wings that kind of fold backwards, right? Looks like she's got both her arms flowing backwards and the wings are flowing behind her. It's a really cool image. Um, I never associated it with Nike, but now that I see it, I can't unsee it. Um, and of course, it makes sense uh, that a hood ornament for Rolls Royce would be victory. Uh, but really, really interesting. Now, there's also some talk that the Honda, the Honda motorcycles, if you've ever seen the Honda motorcycles, they have the wing. Um, and that that's a symbol of Nike, but I think that that, that symbol could really be also Hermes because Hermes is a, a messenger, a traveler and another flight God. Um, so I'm not sure, but some people say that that symbol on the Honda motorcycle, motorcycle is, um, uh, what do you call it? Is, is from Nike. Um, of course we have to talk about the, uh, Nike shoes. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> Zeus had promised Nike that she would reign forever for her loyalty to him repeatedly. And one could argue that, in fact, she does reign forever because who doesn't know about Nike shoes, right? And this concept that Nike is or represents strength and victory, anybody can wear them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 30%, um, according to some statistics, of footwear, sports footwear in the world belongs to Nike. Okay. Now Nike is headquartered in Oregon. Okay. And has had apparel since 1978, millions of workers around the globe and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the name Nike was chosen by the company purposely because of her attributes to speed and victory. But the swoosh, interestingly, which I have here as an image of one of her wings, um, is actually drawn by a Nike or was actually copyrighted, trademarked, by a Nike employee. Her name was Carolyn Davis, and she was paid $35 for that design. Yeah. So Nike had a contest, which many companies do, um, to create a logo, and she created the swoosh, or the, yeah, the swoosh symbol. Of course, rumor has it that she later received an undisclosed amount of stock options as well. Yeah. Uh, but what a wonderful symbol. And so in a way, I don't know. I know that there are many people who don't know that actually Nike, the shoes, come from Nike, the goddess of victory. A lot of people don't know that. Um, of course, if you're into mythology, especially Greek mythology, you do know that. Um, but Nike themselves picked that name, because uh, there was no copyright infringement, uh, to you know, to represent victory and speed and strength and all those kinds of things. And the swoosh, as you can see, some people have argued is just the shape of one of her wings. If you look at some of the more um, ancient depictions of her wings. So it's kind of really cool. Uh, so again, we have another goddess that has significant influence, uh, literally, if we're looking at Nike and if we're looking at the Olympics and things like that. So actually, sorry, <laughs> if you think about the Olympics, Nike, the goddess, literally has the exact same excuse me, responsibility today that she did 2,000 years ago. That is awarding winners. That's incredible because I'm not sure that any other goddess today is allowed the same responsibility and honored in the same place as they were when they were Olympians. <gasps> but Nike is. So again, that really interesting connection that we never really think about, you know? So when I saw Nike as being the awarder, awarder or awardee 
of victory in the Olympics. And I thought, well, of course, because that's what she did back in 2000 years ago. And then I thought to myself, wait, but what other goddess does that today? I mean, Athena is no longer the goddess of war or even the goddess of Athens. Artemis is not like something that hunters uh, really bow to before they go hunting. Nobody knows who Demeter is anymore. People eat cereal. I tell my students, do you know who Ceres is? Ceres is the... Um, Latin word or the Latin name of Demeter. And that's why I always have cereal. And they'll look at me and go, oh, whoa. So that that's not the thing. Uh, Persephone, I can't even get into because, I mean, who thinks about Persephone when we talk about the afterlife? Here we're talking about angels and Peter and Paul and Michael. Who else have we got? Hera, not even close, you know, supposed goddess of marriage. Um, Aphrodite, I mean, do we do we invoke? I mean, it, yeah, and witches invoke and, je- and goddess worshipers do invoke these goddesses. But in popular culture, an accepted accepted patriarchal culture, the only goddess that maintains her role publicly without heresy to this day is Nike. I'm going to leave you there <laughs> because that's amazing. Thank you so much for watching today. I've had so much fun doing this podcast. I hope you had so much fun listening to it. I don't know what I'm doing next week. Um, I'll come up with something. No worries. Uh, so we've got four more episodes. And then we've got the last episode, which is the finale, which is the question and answer. So again, if you have any questions about this particular goddess or any other goddesses, please feel free to drop them in the comments or submit them on Instagram um, or any of my social media. I, I didn't say at the beginning, but my social media is Artemis Expert everywhere. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I usually post like a send me your questions. So please feel free to send me your or just DM me your questions. No problem at all. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to pick up the book, uh, can you see it here? Yes. Sorry. Uh, then uh, and you want it signed or someone's birthday, or someone that's into Artemis or hunting is coming up, and you want me to sign it for them, that would be fantastic. Please uh, go to the Artemis Research Center website and and order one, and I will send that out to you. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope that you have a great long weekend if you're in Canada, and weekend if you're anywhere else in the world, and I will see you next week. Bye, all.